your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Nick Mosley. Nick is the owner and CEO of Confidence Analytics, which is an analytical testing laboratory for the legal cannabis industry. They operate in both the state of Washington and the state of California. And this is a cannabis testing lab. So all of the legal products that go up for sale in Washington and California and other states, they have to go through testing. They have to be tested for potency, such as THC levels. They have to be tested for the presence of things like pesticides and contaminants and heavy metals. And he operates a lab which tests for all that stuff. So he has a background in analytical chemistry, and he's been operating in the legal cannabis space for a number of years now. So all of the products that are legally sold in dispensaries, whether it's flour or cannabis concentrates or edibles, all of these things have to go through some minimum amount of testing that's legally required. So they get tested for cannabinoid concentrations, things like CBD and THC content. They sometimes get tested for other compounds like terpenes, which we talked about. And they also get tested for all of the the nasty stuff that you don't want to see in your products, things like pesticides and heavy metals, microbes that can be found in this plant. And we talked about how analytical testing for cannabis products works. We talked about all of the things that they see, you know, our potency levels changing over time and what does that look like. We talked about uh, why growers and producers use things like pesticides to keep pests off of their plants, how common those things are detected in legal cannabis products and some of the pesticides that they tend to see. We talked about things like microbial contaminants. So cannabis is a plant and just like any other plant, there's all sorts of molds and mildews and bacteria that like to eat the plant. And so we talked about some of that stuff. So if you're interested in analytical chemistry and in particular cannabis testing, how that works and what they actually do and what they see in legal cannabis products today, this will be an interesting episode for you. So we talked about, as I said, you know what they're seeing and what they've seen over the last few years. Uh, our potency levels and cannabinoid profiles changing in these products. What do those look like? What kinds of terpenes get tested for and, and what do those terpenes profiles look like? And how often do products actually fail for things like pesticides or heavy metals or other nasty things that you don't want in there? We also talked about the phenomenon of THC inflation and lab shopping, which is common in the cannabis industry. So consumers generally buy products that have uh, as much THC as they can get for their dollar. And so there's an economic incentive for producers of products to have higher THC levels. And there's been a number of cases in this industry of labs artificially providing elevated THC levels or different producers uh, tampering with their products to get higher THC levels than the product actually has. And so we talked about the economic drivers of that, how common it is, and, and how the industry has responded over the years to those types of things. So if you're interested in cannabis, what's in cannabis products, and how the analytical testing space works, this will be an interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Please also check out Mind and Matter substack.com to subscribe to my free weekly newsletter and follow my content, whether that's podcast that you're listening to now or the written content that I produce on my Substack. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a product I use called Everyday Dose. They have created excellent coffee and matcha products with functional mushrooms and other supplements and less caffeine than traditional coffee or matcha products. I actually reached out to them because I've been using their product for about a year or so and listeners often ask me about my daily and weekly diet habits. They make a really good mushroom-based coffee alternative. It contains myconutrients with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties as well as collagen protein to help support healthier skin, nails, hair, and joints. And the 
amino acid L-theanine from tea leaves. Each cup has just about 39 milligrams of caffeine. That helps eliminate the caffeine crash that can come if you drink regular coffee, which has much higher caffeine levels. And they use a unique cold extraction process that results in lower acidity than normal coffee. And the caffeine microdose makes it suitable even for someone who doesn't normally drink coffee. This mushroom-based product is made using a double extraction from 100% mushroom fruiting bodies like lion's mane and chaga to maximize the extraction of micronutrients like beta-glucans, triterpenes, and sterols. Other brands don't typically do this, making Everyday Dose one of the highest quality products of its kind. It's gluten, dairy, and nut-free. There's no added sugar. It's paleo and keto-friendly and made with kosher ingredients. There are no grains or fillers, and it is lab-tested to ensure quality. I really like the taste of Everyday Dose compared to black coffee and other mushroom coffees, and they have a mushroom matcha product loaded with functional mushrooms and collagen proteins. So if you like green tea matcha, you'll probably like that product too. If you're interested in a healthy coffee alternative, I highly recommend giving Everyday Dose a try. Check out the link in the episode description or visit everydaydose.com to learn more. If you go there, you can find special offers that they have for getting a free frother and free travel pack of on-the-go doses with your purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Nick Mosley. All right, Nick Mosley, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. Can you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do for work? Sure, yeah. My, my, my name is Nick Mosley. Um, I'm a co-founder of Confidence Analytics, which is one of the analytical testing labs uh, licensed in Washington State. And we also have a license in California. So you, you do cannabis testing in Washington, California. So cannabis is legal in those states. Because it's legal, everything that gets sold has to go through testing. What Can you walk us through the basics of if a, if a product comes in for testing, what are the basic things they have to get tested for and, and what does that look like? Yeah, it varies a little bit state by state, um, but the general, general premise is about the same. Um, on a batch-wise basis, products get manufactured or cultivated, um, and those batches each individually need to be sampled and sent to a third-party testing laboratory um, that is not affiliated with the manufacturer or distributor. So the samples get selected. The size of the sample will depend. It's all driven by regulatory agencies, but you know the size of the sample will depend on the product type that's being sampled, and so will the types of analyses um, that that need to be cleared. So, you know, the most the most common thing people buy in a dispensary is is weed. It's flour. It's it's you know the physical uh, plant material that people are you know probably thinking of when they think of someone buying marijuana. So, you know, when when you get that stuff tested, so someone someone grows it, a producer. They have to get it tested on a batch-wise basis. So they send it in. What are the things that get tested for that are typically required in, in most states? So I sort of think of the testing metrics as two different groups. Um, you've got the label claims as one group of test metrics, and then you have the safety screening as the other set of test metrics. So on the label side of things, um, the state is usually interested in THC and CBD. Usually that's codified in law. That needs to be labeled on the package. Then additionally, there are other cannabinoids. CBN is is one that's fairly commonly discussed, but there are many. CBG, there's a whole barren class of THCV. 
And then increasingly, you know, the industry is discovering um, ways to concentrate and in some cases even create new cannabinoids, Delta-8, Delta-10, THCO acetate. So to the extent that these cannabinoids are regulated or are listed on the label as a label claim, um, then they are tested by the laboratory. Additionally, the terpenes um, provide um, some of the experience, whether that is just the flavor or if it also interacts with the cannabinoids to create the um, psychoactive effect. <clears throat> terpenes are another class of chemicals that the plant produces. Um, and to the extent that they are listed on the label as a claim, um, then they may need to be tested by an independent laboratory. So those are the label claims. Then on the safety screening, the state is usually interested in pesticides, usually at the forefront. Um, heavy metals, um, cannabis plant can be fairly good at pulling metals up out of the soil. Um, so that's a, an area of concern also from atomizers in vapor products. Um, residual solvents, when those are used in the manufacturing process, bacterias, molds, um, and a few toxins that are made by molds. That's generally the, the full suite of tests. I see. So, so there's label claims, which is basically just, you know, does this, what is it, does this product, uh, what does this product have in it? And, you know, does it have what it says it has? So I guess the idea would, there would be, it, you know, it's pretty much just like other consumer categories, right? Like if you buy a bottle of alcohol, it's got the, the sure. percentage alcohol content on the label. Sure. If you buy food, it's got, you know, the caloric and nutritional content. It's just, it's just supposed to be telling the consumer what's inside. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and that's sort of the fun, the fun side. And then the other side is the, the not fun side where you don't want to see those things. Yeah. So the, the label claims like this is what's inside of it. This is what it's supposed to have. This is what you sort of want to be in the product. And then, and then there's obviously stuff that you don't want to be in there. So it's not supposed to be in there. So it can't be sold if it's above a certain level. Let's maybe talk about these one at a time. So for like the label claims, I, I, probably the main thing that most people get focused on is the THC content or the potency of the product. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how this is measured in the lab on the science side? And then like some of the trends that you've seen over the years on, on the lab testing side in terms of, you know, are products becoming more potent over time? How much variation is there? Like some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, I think so. So, I mean, for one thing, there's been increased interest in variety of cannabinoids beyond just THC, but obviously THC is the main player. Um, and I think, there's a decent amount of evidence to suggest that the total THC content in cannabis flower has been increasing over time. Um, but I think that timeline is really more on the order of decades. Um, and so in our experience with the regulated market where these products have been consistently tested thoroughly and frequently, uh, we've seen perhaps a modest increase in the average flower THC concentration. Um, definitely in our experience, the first couple years of the regulated industry saw a, a quite a bit of increase. And I think that was just as cultivators sort of sifted through their, their seed stock and selected those cultivars that had the highest concentration. And since then we've seen, you know, a fairly consistent, an average that I would say is probably in the, 19% THC is where most, so, most okay. flowers are. So, so flower 
the, the cannabis plant material tends to have, you know, around 19% THC today. And when, like, when did you get started? So what's the timeline that you were just describing? What years? Like, so our lab was on the ground floor. Washington state was the first state to require a regulated, um, you know, testing regimen, um, Colorado followed slightly behind on requiring uh, testing. And so, uh, and, and we tested the first sample in the state. So we've been, we've been here ground floor uh, going on nine years. Okay. So for the past decade, you know, there's been some increase in the potency, but, but not that high. Things have maybe yeah. plateaued. Yeah. And so most people, most people buy weed, they are primarily or exclusively concerned with the THC content. That's the thing that is primarily dictating the psychoactive intensity of the experience that you'll have. And because that's what people are most familiar with, uh, that's that's sort of been steering how consumers spend their dollars. So mm-hmm. w- with that sort of bias on the consumer side, the consumers getting focused on buying products based on how much THC is inside of them, what sort of issues has that cause to arise on the lab testing side in terms of how the testing is conducted, which labs the producers pick and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. I think there's a lot of merit to having a conversation about how the, the THC percentage in the product is maybe not the best predictor of the product's quality or even the, of the effect that it might have on you. But nonetheless, you're right. The average consumer is, using the THC percentage on the label as a, as an indicator. It's a strong metric um, that the average consumer uses to assess product quality and to make a purchase decision. And as a result, um, there's pressure on retail stores. There's pressure on the manufacturers and the distributors that, you know, products with higher percentage numbers on the label will sell better. And so that places pressure on the laboratories to provide numbers that are higher than what might actually exist inside the package. And so there's been a pervasive conversation um, over the last decade um, where especially folks who are plugged into the industry understand that there are certain labs that you can go to where perhaps you'll get a higher THC number and that may be beneficial to the distributor, even if it is misleading to the consumer. And so what, like, it's kind of funny that you mentioned earlier, like in your, your guys' hands, in your lab, the average THC percentage in flour lands at about 19%. And, you know, I've done a lot of work analyzing lab data, um, including your lab, a bunch of labs across a bunch of states. What's kind of funny to me is what you see in, many labs, probably a majority in basically any state you look at, is when you look at averages lab by lab, the average is typically at or a little bit above 20%, which is mm-hmm. a little bit higher than the number you told us. So what what's going on there when we see these differences, when we look, up, when we look at the results from lab to lab, even in the same state, even when we look at comparable products, some labs produce higher or lower percentages than others. So what what's going on there? Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, there are several thresholds um, that I, you know, it, it's, it's generated by, by the retail, by the buyers, by the consumers. Um, there's a perception, right. That, that 20% is worth more than 19%. 20% has become a threshold um, that buyers want to see 
the flour above 20%. So there's pressure on labs that, you know, when you, and it's unfortunate that the average flour probably falls somewhere around 19, 18, 19, somewhere in there. But then the industry really wants to see it 20 or above. And I think you'll, you see the same thing in your data sets at 25, you know, as another threshold where I'd really rather see my flower be 25 than 24 because the price difference can be substantial. Um, and so, and when we extend it to other product types, the same thing happens. So, you know, in the infused pre-rolls, 40% is the threshold. In, in a lot of vapor products, 80 or 85% is the threshold. For distillates, 90, isolates, 99 um, and so at each of these places, the industry places, you know, at each of these thresholds, the industry places higher value for getting above the threshold. And that creates an incentive um, for, for labs to sort of fudge the numbers. Um, and that's really unfortunate that it happens, but I, I think it's fairly pervasive. So how many labs are in like Washington, for example, about? I think Washington has 11 labs right now. Okay, so there's about 11 labs. And so if you're a producer, if you're growing or producing cannabis products in Washington, you can use any one of these labs. It's pretty easy to use any of them. How does, how does a producer choose a lab um, in theory and in practice? Well, you know, I would think in theory, um, producers should be looking for service, right? So it's price, it's turnaround time, and it's quality of information that they're gathering. Um, because while there is a regulatory requirement for this information to be gathered, there's a lot of internal quality value to it, right? A, a producer should want to produce a consistent product that is of high quality and information from laboratories in the cannabis industry and in other industries. Laboratory information is used as a quality assurance guide to the manufacturer. So, um so in theory, yeah, they you'd think that they'd be shopping based on turnaround time, so speed of service, quality of service, price. Um, that's sort of the engineer's triangle right there. But uh, I think in practice, some brands do shop around for, number one, higher THC numbers, and number two, uh, for passing results in the event that they may have product that wouldn't otherwise pass. I see. So, so if you've got something that's 19% THC, you send it to three labs and one of them gives you 19 and the other two give you like 20 or 22. Naturally, you're going to want your label to have that higher number. And then on the, the passing side, you know, maybe, maybe it has above the allowable threshold of like pesticides or heavy metals or something like that. And if it fails, if one, that one sample that was tested fails, you're talking about a, a fairly substantial amount of product that that brand wouldn't yeah. be able to sell. So they want a lab that, that won't fail them basically. Yeah. yeah. And how, like that happens, how often would you say that happens? Like qualitatively speaking, a lot, a little bit, somewhere in the middle. Um, it, it's hard to know for sure, but I would say, you know, I, my lab services three to 400 customers a year. And I would say over the last 12 months, I've probably seen three or four different instances where, you know, I, a customer came to us, said, Hey, you failed my product. Um, I sent it to another lab that passed it. Um, and, and then we may never see them again. And we don't know the number of times that that happens without them alerting us to it. But yeah, I think it, it happens with some regularity. 
how often like so in your lab in in washington say for flour cannabis flour the plant material you know g- give us a sense for like how often samples uh don't pass things like the pesticide test or the the microbe contamination test and things like that is it 10 percent? is it 20 percent? is it one percent it's single digit percent for cannabis flour. It's higher for concentrates, um, which makes sense for a variety of reasons, uh, concentrating the pesticides, starting with lower quality material, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to quality flour, um, we see failure rates in low single digit percents. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, when, when we talk about some of these thresholds and some of these things that are tested for, you know, whether it's pesticides, whether it's bacteria and mold, how exactly how concerning is this? So for example, are the, are the thresholds and the stringency of the requirements, are they like really conservative such that, you know, even if something, you know, didn't quite pass, but you know, some lab passed it, you know, it probably isn't going to be like a life or death situation for a consumer. And, you know, how, how many things are like really concerning that you see that would plausibly be inside of products that aren't being passed appropriately? Well, I think the honest answer is that it's hard to know. Um, Cannabis is a pretty unique commodity in terms of the way it's consumed. Um, So we don't have a lot of understanding for how. So when you when you consume a toxin, generally, you know, if you're eating it, um, it's going to pass through your stomach and through your liver before it makes its way to your bloodstream and to the rest of your body. Now, your stomach, as you know, it, you know, it's filled with acids, so it can break down um, certain chemicals. Your liver really is your body's chemical plant, where um, your food, before it makes its way to your blood, gets processed by your liver, and, that, and that'll remove a lot of toxins. So we know a lot about how pesticides affect humans and animals, especially as those pesticides are ingested, you know, through eating. Um, What we don't have a lot of information on is how they affect a human when they're inhaled. And also when they're combusted before they're inhaled, because when you inhale a toxin, it goes into your lungs and then straight into your bloodstream. It bypasses your liver. It can get, make its way to your brain without touching your liver. And so there's reason to believe that pesticides are more toxic um, or at least differently toxic when they're inhaled instead of eaten. Um, and, and the truth is pesticides are regulated generally by the USDA and the EPA who set standards for pesticide tolerance levels in various commodities. Now, cannabis is not federally legal so when it comes to cannabis, the states have to make these determinations themselves, and they honestly lack the resources that the federal government has. And so in many instances, they sort of have to, well, I mean, for lack of a better term, they pull it out of thin air. Um, they may look to other commodities, but again, it's hard to find a comparable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what they do is they, they, they set levels that are conservatively low. Is that sufficient? It's hard to say. I see. So, so we really don't know, you know, if something gets into your body from the lungs directly into the bloodstream, we know that that's going to allow it to, um, it's going to be processed by the body differently than if you eat it, as you said. And in general, 
right? It's not going to go through the liver or not as quickly and not as much. So there is risk of of higher toxicity from something, but we really, you know, haven't looked at the specific things that tend to be in cannabis when they're inhaled. So we don't actually know the specific answers for most of these things. Right. What, um, so when we think about, I mean, at the end of the day, right, this whole industry is basically based on farming, right? You got to go grow the plants, you got to harvest them, you got to process them and, and put them, uh, get them into the form factor that is ultimately going to be sold to the consumer. And, you know, because we're talking about farming plants here, you know, pests are always a concern to farmers and it's a legitimate concern, right? There's mold that can grow on the plant. There's bugs that can eat it. There's also everything that you would think about if you were, you know, farming any other crop basically. And so how, how common, you know, how commonly used are pesticides based on the results you've seen in your lab and what are some of the pesticides that are used and what are they used for? Is it for insects? Is it for other stuff? What are the more common ones? Yeah. So, yeah, I think the, the cannabis farmer is put into a pretty difficult situation. They're growing a very high value crop um, you know, on a square footage basis. What they're growing um, is very valuable. Their square footage is also limited um, by their license. So generally cannabis farmers are not, you know, sowing acres and acres of, uh, of cannabis fields where, you know, maybe they could afford to lose 30% of their field and still have a good harvest. It doesn't really exist in cannabis. You've got your, your entire field has to be licensed. Usually it has to be surrounded by an eight foot high fence that obstructs visual. It has to have cameras at every corner. Um, so they're limited in how much uh, square footage they're allowed to grow. Um, they have very expensive inputs. Licensure is very expensive. Um, and, and this, this crop is not immune to blight. Um, and, and then additionally, they're monocropping. You know, they, there's not a good economic incentive to rotate cannabis crops with strawberries one year and corn the next year and then cannabis the other. Again, because your plot of land is licensed for cannabis and, and you want to grow that there. So it's monocropping, it's high value, it's limited canopy space. Um, and sometimes it's indoor too, which can increase the risk for some pests. So I think the pests that they're, that cannabis farmers usually are facing are um, various types of mites, both mites that grow on the plant itself and mites that grow on it in the soil on its roots um, and, and mold, uh, powdery mildew is a big one. So the types of pesticides that are most frequently seen um, are those that are targeting molds and insects. And how often do you see the, how often do flower samples in, in Washington or California say test above what the legal limits are for pesticides? I'd say it's in the low single digits, you know, 1%, 2% of cannabis samples. I mean, we're detecting these things more often than that. But, you know, the, the failures, and, and that's actually something that's progressed quite a bit over the years. I mean, we first started testing for pesticides in 2016. And, um, and at that point, we were seeing in flower of about a 10% failure rate and in concentrates, you know, vapor products, um, we were seeing failure rates upwards of 40%. And just providing more access to the information has really helped, you know, through testing, has really helped the cultivators um, 
bring down their exposure. And I think it, it places pressure on them from their buyers, um, from the downstream product manufacturers um, to source clean product. And we've seen it definitely clean up quite a bit in the last six, seven years. That's good news. Um, so you mentioned earlier, like you've, you have experiences as, as the person operating the lab, you've had experiences where someone sends you a sample and it fails. Let's say, you know, it fails the pesticide test or it fails one of the other tests, but then they'll tell you they sent it to another lab and that lab passed, you know, a sample from the same batch. And there's a couple ways I can think to interpret that. The the generous way to interpret that would be to think, well, the producer's just being rigorous, right? They're, they're getting multiple test results and comparing them and, you know, they're, they're just being diligent. Um, and then the other way to interpret it is, well, this could just be a strategy for shopping around for whoever's going to give you that passing grade, even if, you know, you, you're actually, you actually are going to be failing that test for pesticides or heavy, heavy metals or what have you. And so I guess my question is like, how, how often does that happen and how explicit is it? Do you just get examples where, you know, from time to time, you know, you fail, you fail a sample from someone and then you learn from them or, or somehow that they've sent it somewhere else and, and another lab has passed it? Or do you get, do you get examples where people come in and basically tell you what they expect you to get? Yeah, it's a little bit of all of the above. I mean, I generally like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, it's an unfortunate um, characteristic of humans that we um, have confirmation bias. So a lot of times folks, you know, the, the manufacturer will think um, that the product they have produced doesn't have pesticides in it. And so when they get a result from us that indicates there are pesticides present, their their natural reaction is to not believe that. And then if they go get a second opinion from another lab and that lab says there's no pesticide there, their natural reaction is to believe that because that's what they originally believed, right? So this is confirmation bias and it drives a lot of human decision-making even when the intent is not nefarious. That said, you know, I would hope that due diligence would bring them to, to you know, test more than just two labs to get more than just two opinions. Um, we certainly, when we're approached um, for explanation, we do we do our due diligence and try to provide our rationale for how we landed at the decision that we did. We also have a partner lab that that we know does good science, and we're always willing to send out a reference to them for a second opinion. But sometimes, you know, it. it the, the dollars speak louder than words and we do lose the customer. I, like I said, I, I would say it probably happens, you know, uh, five or 10 times a year that we lose a customer through a situation like this. And it's apparent. And the most common type of customer of ours that, that encounters this situation is, is one who is making uh, a concentrate. So like a, and an inhalable or a, like a vapor product. Mm -hmm. And they, they are not the grower of the flower themselves. So mm. this is, this is a brand who is purchasing flour from a farmer, then distilling it or extracting it um, into a concentrate and then, and then having it tested. And so they're, you know, they're, they can be caught off guard because they've been told by the farmer that there's, you know, there will be no pesticides in this. We don't use pesticides. 
Um, so that's really the most common occurrence. And then it becomes a negotiation between them and their, and the grower, um, you know, how they're going to write that wrong. Mm-hmm. And so like when you make a concentrate, um, obviously, you know, that that's the name, it's a concentrate. So you're concentrating the, the resin of the plant to get, for example, a uh, higher THC levels. Um, so if you look at, you know, any of these concentrate products, they can have much higher THC levels than the flower products they're derived f- from. Is there, does that concentration happen to any of these pesticides or undesirables as well? Do those things also get concentrated in those products? They absolutely do. And they get concentrated typically at about the same ratio as the cannabinoids get concentrated. So if you're going to start with a, like we said, a 19 or 20% flower and concentrate that to an 80% concentrate, um, then any pesticides that existed in the, in the original flower, you can anticipate about a 4X increase in their I levels. See. So yeah. to, the, to the extent that's happening and to the extent that's going to be problematic for health reasons, it, it really is a question mark as to like no one has just done the studies to go look at these products and see if there's any effect even in animals or something for, for you know, some of these pesticides and other undesirables. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of a lot more research would be necessary to know, you know, what what levels are can actually be tolerated by people. I mean, another unfortunate reality too is it, we're usually when we are detecting pesticides at levels above the action limit, the failure limit, um, we're often detecting them at at levels much higher. Um, so. You know, it's not just barely squeaking by with a fail. A lot of times, you know, it's t- five, ten. I mean, I've seen sometimes where it's hundreds of times over the action limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, logically, you would think that that's a pretty serious cause for concern. And some folks have have um, proposed that it may be one of the causes of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Where over the last few years, there have been some people who have been getting uh, extreme bouts of vomiting from certain strains of cannabis, and it's mm-hmm. wondered if it's actually a contaminant. And interesting. Not the itself. Yeah. That's an interesting idea because I have heard of this, and one of the characteristics, right? The, the symptoms are basically you're really sick. You're you're vomiting a lot, hyperemesis. Um, it's not pleasant to have. But one of the things that's curious about it is the people who have it don't have that reaction every time it sort of happens randomly. And so people start to think, well, maybe it's one strain or one brand or whatever. But what you're saying is we don't know this, but one hypothesis would be that if you've got say 1% of products out there that have too high levels of some pesticide, something like that, you know, in theory could be causing something like, like these symptoms. Yeah. I mean, that, it, that seems logical, but like we said, we need more studies. So we're just, we're going off of biological plausibility here. Mm-hmm. So based on what you've said so far, it sounds like, it sounds like, tell me if this would be like a fair, your, a, a fair assessment of what you would say uh, the, the retail market looks like for products. There are definitely products out there that have been tested and that are on uh, store shelves and dispensaries that have above the the legal limits for pesticides and other things. It's pro- it's not a majority of products. It's probably not an incredibly large a number, but it is some number of them that's that may be concerning. I would say definitely, yes. As a like as a consumer or sort of on behalf of the consumer, based on all of your testing experience, 
Would you say consumers should be more concerned about some products having undesirables like pesticides, or they should be more concerned about whether or not the label claims are accurate, like the THC potency? Oh, well, I guess it depends on where, where your goals are and where your heart lies. I mean, I, I think, I think the potency inflation is much more widespread uh, than the pesticide contamination on the shelf. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a fairly serious consumer protection concern, but, you know, excessive levels of pesticide, um, whether or not they cause, you know, an acute sickness like cannabis hyperemesis, or if they can build up over time and increase your, your risk for cancer or liver failure. Um, I mean, that's, that's an enormous concern. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, if such a consumer safety issue, um, is really present. And so, I I mean, that's, that's probably where, where my concern is. Mm -hmm. So like the, the label claims like THC percentage, those numbers being inflated, that's a much more pervasive problem, but it's, it's a much more, um, mundane problem from a consumer safety standpoint than the other stuff. Yeah. You would say, you know, maybe consumers are regularly getting, ripped off. And mm-hmm. that's not the same as, you know, an increased risk for cancer, for example. Yeah. 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 And so like when, you know, I know that there's been, there's been controversy over the years in most States on this potency inflation stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a number of stories out there where some labs get caught, you know, basically doing, doing bad things, inflating the numbers, passing samples shouldn't be passed. How, you know, when you look at lab to lab differences, how, how egregious are some of these um, inflation examples where, where labs get caught producing numbers that are higher than actually in the sample? Is it typically like, you know, labs are pretty close in their numbers and they just drift a little bit one way or the other that you could just chalk up to methodological differences? Or are there clear examples where labs have been systematically and, and egregiously um, you know, and fraudulently like changing the numbers. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's both, you know, I think there are probably labs who maybe just random differences in their methods, um, even inadvertently are producing slightly higher numbers. Maybe I think there, I think there are probably other labs who intentionally find little things they can do along the way in the method that will, bump up the numbers a little bit. And then there are obvious examples of egregious um, inflation that is clearly, it's not even methodological. It's so systematic um, and so large that, I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's on the level of fraud. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you so see those it, cases, like how, how big, how how big of a, an issue is it? Like how many percentage points are we talking about a couple of percentage points, inflated numbers, 10%, yeah. like how big is the difference? So, so for example, a, a lab in Washington in 2020 was shut down um, for providing preferred results only to some customers. And they were doing it. They were found to have been doing it um, just through the software. So it was the method was fine and was working well. And most customers were getting normal potency results, but a few of their customers were, you know, a data scientist would go in in the middle of the night and change the numbers. And so that's just, that's how that happened. Um, In California right now, there are a couple of class action lawsuits 
um, underway that allege um, that consumers have been sold infused pre-rolls that are labeled between 40 and 45%, where a reanalysis at a trusted laboratory reveals that it's closer to 30%. So if you think about how much THC the consumer is getting ripped off there, you know, you're being told it's 40%, but you're being given something that's 30%. So you, you know, you're, you're missing a quarter of what you were sold. I see. So, so it can be, it can be fairly substantial. Yeah. And how, you know, how do, uh, how much do the regulations differ, say, between California and Washington? What's, you know, is there, are there things that are required in one state that aren't required in another? And I guess from there, like, what, what do you think ideally the full set of things are that, that we should be looking for from a consumer safety standpoint? Well, you know, we're almost 10 years in on this industry. And I would say that at this point, I think, I think the legislatures in most states have crafted laws that have been translated into rules that are fairly sensible and well thought out. Like the, 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 the industry has matured insofar as the state has written laws that more or less make sense. I think the problem that most states are still experiencing is that enforcement of those well thought out laws um, is often lacking. Um, and so, you know, what I would like to see in almost every regulated cannabis market is a more sophisticated enforcement agency that can not not just apply the law, but apply it fairly and evenly um, across the entire industry. That's where, where I think the industry is really being held back the most right now. What do you think that could look like? So what would enforcement mean specifically? Well, it's, I mean, certainly coming from the perspective of the, you know, the analytical testing laboratories, it's, it's a complex and nuanced topic, um, but it does require that the agency tasked with enforcing the law have on its staff members who understand the intricacies of analytical laboratory testing that have experience and can go into a lab and investigate and really know what's happening there. Because I think what happens today is industry players may know that a laboratory is doing something incorrectly and will alert the enforcement authorities to it. The enforcement authorities just won't know really what to look for and can easily have the wool pulled over their eyes when they do end up going and investigating at a laboratory because it's complex science that's happening. Um, so I really, I, I think it, it comes about through more experience um, and, and, and better staffing at the enforcement agencies. And then also standardization of methods. I mean, you had mentioned earlier, you know, perhaps one, one lab just has a method that's a little bit more favorable. And that absolutely can and does happen. And that could be resolved by standardized methods, which multiple states are working on. Washington state has a standardized method that they'll be adopting in conjunction with New York. So those two states will have the same standardized method. As of 2024, California is working on doing the same thing. They were hoping to have it done by the end of last year. I think they pushed that out to the summer of this year, and it looks like that will get pushed out again. But they're working on standardizing the methods, which ultimately will aid in enforcement. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you have the same methods, you should be producing comparable results, and it's just much more definitive if you do have the same method. You can't just hide behind, oh, our method's a little bit different. It must have right. something to do with the technical details. And so on the consumer side, so again, like like you said, this is really complicated stuff. Um, the average consumer isn't going to understand the nuances of testing. They're really just going to have what is printed on the label mm-hmm. and, and their own you know, purchase, purchase experience and what their experience was with the products they've had. If you were to give advice to consumers around, you know, what can they do to shop for products to help ensure they're getting what they pay for? On, on the label side in terms of THC percentage and, and what's actually inside the product. And then also on the safety side, like what they should be looking for to try and minimize the odds that they're going to get some kind of undesirable in their product. Mm-hmm. Is there anything they can really do? I think it's, it's, a, t- it's a tough question. Um, I think the best that uh, an average consumer could do um, is just familiarize yourself with the brands that are available. I mean, in, in terms of the label claims, um, you know, just finding products that you know and like, I mean, at the end of the day, the level of THC in the product, whether, whether or not the label is correct, quality is in the eye of the beholder. If you like the product, then it's a good product. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's how you know. Um, on the safety side, yeah, I mean, I think the best you can do is really familiarize yourself with the brands that are available. Um, and you know, you, through the help of the retail store and the bud tenders um, and, and whatever marketing is available from the brands. I mean, you, you find the ones that, that you think you can trust. I don't, I don't know how you can do much better than that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've said that like over the years, the, the regulations have gotten better and more reasonable. And, um, you know, maybe there's not as much egregious stuff going on as there used to be. Is that, is that your general take that things are in general, on average, moving in the right direction in terms of testing requirements and you know people doing things by the book. I think I think things have generally gotten better. Yeah, I, I think most most players in the industry do want to do things right, um, and when given information, will will go in the right direction. There there are definitely players who are not playing it straight, and until enforcement can get them in line they have a pretty serious advantage um, and, and often an outsized market share. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about labs uh, or producers? All, both. All, all of the them. above. Yeah. And so like I how- think it's generally going in the right direction. I think, I think the label claims are going to be a really difficult nut to crack mm-hmm. uh, for the enforcement. And there's probably no way around that other than enforcement at the regulatory level. Like it, it, I, well, I can't think of how, how you would get around it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know media helps. So this type of you know podcast, I think that helps when when it is, does end up in the news that you know another lab was shut down or another brand is being sued. Um, I think that helps. I think the lawsuits probably are going to drive some behavior too. I mean, at the end of the day, um, when you hit when people get hit in the wallet, that t- tends to change their behavior. And so you've got some of the biggest brands in California right now are facing class action lawsuits for um, basically consumer deception. Mm-hmm. Um, well, is there, is there, are there any final thoughts you want to leave people with? Um, I, you know, particularly thinking about consumers here when it comes to lab testing and looking for quality, I think you already, you know, kind of gave them some pretty good advice, but you know, what should people be thinking about or at least have in the back of their minds 
when they're shopping for these products and whether or not you know they can place trust in what the label actually says? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the bud tenders are probably your best resource. Um, getting to know the brands through their marketing efforts um, and just through your own trial and error, I think, is the best you can do. I mean, if you really want to dive deep, um, you usually can request the test results from the laboratory. Um, but I don't think that's something the average consumer is really going to do. Um, it, it, it is available and it may be informative and that can be another tool in your toolbox to understand which lab may have tested the product and whether or not that's a reputable lab. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, just familiarity with products you like and know and brands that you trust. Um, that's what you have to go on. All right. Well, Nick Mosley, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.